Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And read with me, beginning with verse 7. If you're listening to this by CD right now, this is the second half of last week's message. So let there be no confusion. It sounds exactly like last week, but it is not, as you will see. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 7. Just to lay the foundation and the context for what we're going to talk about this morning. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he said, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach every one his fellow citizen and every one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, last week we began our study by thinking about the most significant covenants of the Old Testament because they set us up for what the author is seeking to communicate to us here about the superiority of Christ over the Old Covenant. And by way of reminder from last week, let's just let me just help us recall what a covenant is. The word covenant means to fetter as in a chain that binds a prisoner, as one is chained to a guard or to a wall. The song I was trying to remember last week, if you will remember that I forgot, was uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, where the sinners plead with God with these words, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering soul to thee. To enter covenant with someone means that we yoke ourselves to them, as when the Apostle Paul warns us that we should not yoke ourselves together with an unbeliever, for what fellowship has darkness with light. The word covenant also means to cut. In fact, that's literally what the word means in Genesis chapter 15, when the Abrahamic covenant is cut. It's not just made. The covenant is cut, which, which has to do with the cutting of animals and shedding blood for the sacrifice. If you enter into covenant with someone, it means you are blood earnest about fulfilling the terms of that covenant agreement. And that's exactly what we see throughout the Bible. And now as we consider the major Old Testament covenants, we learn that all of the covenants have some significant things in common. As you study them, you discover that there is 
the persons of the covenant or the people who are covenanting with one another or perhaps one to another. There is the sacrifice of the covenant where an animal usually loses his life for the sake of cutting covenant. There are the terms of the covenant. And finally, the sign of the covenant. And then on occasion, there is the meal of the covenant. For example, and this is just by way of review, God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 8. We looked at that last time. We learned that the persons of the covenant were God on the one hand and all the animals and all the people of all generations to come. The sacrifice of the covenant was a burnt offering that Noah offered the Lord of the clean animals that came out of the ark. He made a sacrifice and offered a burnt offering. The terms of the covenant in chapter uh, 8, verse 11, God promised never to pour out his wrath again upon the earth by means of a flood to destroy mankind because of their sin. And the sign of the covenant was what? The rainbow, just seeing if you're listening. It was the rainbow, so that every time, to all generations, even to today, when we see a rainbow, we shouldn't just think, although it's nice to look at it and say, wow, isn't God a marvelous artist? And that's true. And isn't God good in sending us a rainbow? Yes, he is. But there's a depth to that goodness. There is meaning behind that. This is a sign of the Noahic covenant that God will never open the floodgates of heaven and destroy the world by flood in his wrath ever again. So when it rains, don't be afraid that I'm destroying the world. I'll never do it like that again. And then there's the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. The persons of the covenant, you remember, were God on the one hand and Abraham and his descendants on the other, the sacrifice of the covenant was where Abraham, in obedience to God, took the animals that God prescribed, he killed them, he cut them in half, and set them in a row as to walk through, which would be common in those days to uh, cut covenant with another person on a serious issue, which is the only time you would do it. And you would hold hands with that person after cutting the animals and laying them out, and you would walk between those pieces, indicating may. What happened to these animals happened to me if I failed to meet the terms of the covenant. And what were the terms of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, they were with uh, with Abraham. God was committing to Abraham that he would indeed have a boy, a baby boy of his own. And through through him would come descendants who would be too numerous for anyone to count more numerous than the stars, and that they would not only, he would not only have a son and a, and a people who would be a nation, Israel, but they would also have a special land. This was the first indication of them having a promised land to come. And so those were the terms of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant in chapter 17 of Genesis was circumcision. And finally, we... Enter the Mosaic Covenant. Let let me say something, though, just as an aside about the Abrahamic Covenant. One of the things that I didn't include in here uh, that was part of the covenant was the changing of the names. You remember, I said this is Abrahamic. Technically, when they entered into this covenant with God, Abraham, his real name was what? Abram. Abram. And Sarah's real name was Sarai. 
And there was not only this killing of the animal, the sacrifice and the terms of the covenant and the sign of the covenant. There was also the exchange of the name. And what happened was God, as it were, took a piece of his name, the A-H from Yehovah, and inserted it into Abram so that he became Abraham. And he inserted his name into Sarai, making it Sarah. They now belong to him. They had now entered into covenant with him. And it's interesting. You see how these kinds of things have filtered all the way down into our time so that when we have a marriage covenant, and that's what it is, and and it, 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 it should bother you when you hear two people say, uh, you know, we're already kind of married, we already love each other, we just, you know, we just don't have the piece of paper. Well, it's not just a piece of paper. Marriage is when two people, a man and a woman, stand before God and they cut covenant together. There are the persons of the covenant. There are the terms of the covenant. And afterwards, well, there's the sign of the covenant, right? I'm wearing mine right here, the ring. That tells every single girl who might be thinking about me, I'm taken. <laughs> yeah, I can count the number of them on one finger, right? That'd be my daughter. Well, both of them, the two fingers. I'm taken. That's a sign of the covenant. I belong to another. And then there's the meal of the covenant. It's significant that after the wedding, there's the reception. It's not just the party. We've lost the meaning of these things. When a man and woman enter into marriage, it is a covenant before God. And some of the major aspects of historical covenant language are throughout the marriage ceremony. So it's not just a matter of, you know, saying, I do, kiss the bride, eat the cake, go away. You don't like this one, get rid of her. You know, go find another one. She burns the bagels. Lord, can we divorce her for any reason? No, you can't. Because this isn't just an agreement. It's not just a con- contract between two people. It is more than that. It is a covenant with God and with the person you are marrying. And that's just an aside. But then we see the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 24 where Moses led Israel out of Egypt and brought them to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, also called in the Bible Horeb. And as you know, the core of this covenant was the Ten Commandments. Nevertheless, we see that the core elements of covenant brought out once again in this case. The persons of the covenant here were God and Israel. The sacrifice of the covenant we see in Exodus 24, 3 through 8, as the burnt offerings are offered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then the offerings are continued. Part of the covenant was their continual sacrifices, which Hebrews talks about, right? Comparing the old sacrifices with Christ. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for millennia, for generation after generation, as compared to the once-for-all sacrifice for sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is to show the superiority of Christ. And it is specifically showing the superiority of Christ over what's called the Old Covenant, and that's this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. The terms of the covenant were these. They were relatively simple. 
God said, if you obey me and keep the covenant, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, that is, if you break the terms of the covenant, I will curse you. And uh, we see this again stated in Deuteronomy 11.26 as the covenant is restated. God told them, when you cross over the Jordan River, you enter into the promised land. There's going to be two hills, two mountains. One is called Nebo and the other one is Gerizim. And I want you to send your priests up and your leaders, and I want you to split them in half, and half of them go up Gerizim, and half of them go up Nebo. And those who are up at Nebo are to proclaim all the curses of the covenant. And all of those who are up Gerizim are to proclaim all of the blessings of the covenant, so that as they enter the promised land that first week or first month or whenever it happened, the very first thing they do after dispatching Jericho is they rehearse the blessings and the curses of the covenant. The terms are, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. The sign of the covenant, well, there was already circumcision. That was already an important part of this nation's life and history. It showed that they belonged to God. But now now for this covenant, there was a new sign. It was the Sabbath. And by the way, again, just as another, another aside, and we could take a lot of asides, covenant is so extremely important to our understanding of the New, Te- New Testament. This is why we don't call the Lord's Day the Sabbath. We don't call the Lord's Day the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath was the centerpiece, the sign of the Old Covenant. Rather, this is the Lord's Day which has replaced Sabbath observance. So you see in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul tells the uh, Jewish believers there, don't let anyone defraud you of your prize, which is Christ, by taking his stand on festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days. In addition, there was the meal of the covenant, and we saw that Exodus 24, and you may never have noticed that before, but when they go up to meet God for the first time, Moses doesn't go alone. He takes the elders with him, and they see God, and they sit down on the mountain and have a meal. God is establishing his covenant, and he will do something else significant with the meal as related to covenant. You remember when he brought him out of Egypt previous to this? He established what meal? Say it. The Passover. That's right. The Passover meal, which would be significant through all generations of Jewish history, even today. The Passover is important. In fact, if you have a calendar that's printed in America and it's got all the holidays on it, I guarantee it's going to be printed with Passover. Because Passover is still a significant part of Jewish history and practice. Now, as we consider these Old Testament covenants, let's summarize what God promised each of these, the people in each of these covenants. The Noahic covenant, God promised humanity an, inherit, an inheritance of a world that would never again be destroyed by flood. It doesn't mean there wouldn't be local floods, but it does mean the girl would, that God would never pour out his wrath upon the world and kill all men and beasts by flood ever again. There would always be a place to go to get away from the water. Now, I remind you what we said last week, Second Peter 3.7 says, 
God is going to judge the world again, and it will be even worse because next time he'll judge us, judge this world by fire. And then in the Abrahamic covenant, what was God's promise? What was the inheritance that the people were to look for? Well, God promised Abraham the inheritance of offspring and of land, offspring who would become a nation, who would have a land, and this would be known as the promised land, and that was the promise. And from them, the, through them, the world would be blessed. And we know that part of the significance Paul goes back to here is when, he, when God said, in Galatians, Paul makes this point, that when God said to Abraham about his seed, Paul makes a point of saying that was singular, not plural. He's talking about one man who would come from Abraham, who is Christ through whom all the world would be blessed. And then there's the Mosaic Covenant. What's the inheritance of the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the promise that God gave was blessing in the land if they obeyed his law and curses if they did not obey his law. Now, which did they do? Did they obey or disobey? They disobeyed. Now, let me ask you another question. Which do you do? You betcha. And Paul says in Romans 7, do not be confused about the Ten Commandments. They were never intended to save anyone. They were never intended to bring many sons to glory. It's the language of Hebrews. They were never intended to reconcile us to God in a permanent way. It was merely to show us our abject poverty of spirit. That we have nothing to offer God but our sin. And so no matter how they tried, they couldn't earn God's righteousness. They couldn't satisfy God. Now that is not to say, now, good theology is a theology that makes appropriate distinctions. And what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying that no Jew could please God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying no Jew could satisfy God. No, God. no Jew or no Gentile. No one. We are all under sin, Romans 3 says, right? We are all sinners, both Jews and Greeks. We're all under the same curse because we cannot be righteous ever since Adam. Now I ask you, if God's ultimate purpose is to bring many sons to glory, what's wrong with these three covenants? They don't do that. And I would submit to you, as I have already submitted to you in previous sermons, God never intended those covenants to do that. None of them could provide for eternal salvation. If God was going to save men and women from the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, then there had to be something beyond these former covenants. And the really, the most important one was the Mosaic Covenant. And the reason it was the most important to the context of Hebrews is because, listen, when this author, whoever he was, was writing this letter, the book of Hebrews, as we call it, he was writing it in a day to Jewish people. He was writing it in a day when the temple where Christ ministered was still standing. This was just previous to 70 A.D. When Titus, the Roman general, would come in and sack 
Jerusalem and do exactly what Jesus said. You remember when the uh, disciples came out and said, Lord, look at all of these wonderful buildings. And he said, I tell you the truth, there will not be one stone standing upon another. So there had to be another covenant. There had to be another covenant. There had to be another covenant. Now, it would have been logical for the author to argue this way and to stop and say, do you see the logic? Do you see the logic? The Noahic covenant couldn't save us. The Abrahamic covenant couldn't save us. The Mosaic covenant couldn't save us. There had to be a new covenant. And so we have Christ who brought to us the new covenant. Now that's logical, right? If there was a thinking Jew who was listening to this, they should have said, yes, it's logical, but is it biblical? I was one time talking to a couple of Catholic friends, and they were trying to convince me of purgatory. If I can remember it, this is how they did it. They said, now, you as a believer understand, as the book of Hebrews clearly says, that without sanctification or without holiness, no one will see the Lord, right? And I said, it's clearly what the Bible says. And you would agree that there is no person who dies in a, in a state of perfection. None of us die perfect. I mean, we all have sin. And we fall short of the glory of God. And even though we are transformed by the Holy Spirit and given a new name and a new heart and, and all of that stuff, yet we still sin. We die imperfectly, do we not? Yes, we do. And yet God has said no one will enter his kingdom unless we are sanctified, holy, perfect, pure. And so don't you see the logic that there has to be a place between death and heaven where your sins are purged? Isn't that logical? And I said, you are absolutely right. That is very logical. Problem is, it's not biblical. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Do not allow yourself to be wowed by philosophy. Read the book of Colossians. Do not allow yourself to be staggered or set back because somebody has a new philosophy, a new wisdom. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, Christ is now the power of God and the wisdom of God. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, this is foolishness. But to us who believe Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so we argue this logic, and the author could simply have argued this logic, but it wouldn't have been insufficient. Because he hasn't yet demonstrated that it's biblical. And so when we read, look at your text in chapter 8, beginning with verse 8, for finding fault with them, he says. Now look at the way the rest of most of this chapter is printed. Is it not different in your Bible? There's a reason for that. He's quoting someone. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. It's as if the author is saying, listen, I'm not just arguing from logic. 
I am just going to the clear teaching of your scriptures, our scriptures. For, verse 8, finding fault with them, he, that is God, says. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible. We have already read this text, starting with verse 8. I want you to turn your Bible back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Go to the Psalms, if you're looking for it, and turn right. You'll pass a few books. You'll hit Jeremiah right after Isaiah. I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. (coughs) And um, I'll tell you where in just a minute. Jeremiah has been called by God to speak to the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. You remember what happened after Solomon reigned for his 40 years, and he got to the end, and there was confusion about who was going to reign after him, and one of his sons got up and said, I'm the king, and somebody else got up and said, I'm the king, and it split the kingdom. And so there was a northern kingdom, which was the biggest by far part of Israel, and it was called Israel. And there was a southern kingdom, and it was by far the smaller, and it comprised Jerusalem and the southern region, and it was called Judah. Now, just as an aside again, whenever you're reading 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and all those kings are confusing, the way you understand those two, those four books is by looking at the first thing it says in the beginning of the chapter. It'll say, so-and-so king of And it will either be Judah or Israel. And they go back and forth. One chapter is Judah. The next one will be Israel. The next one will be Judah. The next one will be Israel. The next one will be Judah. The next one will be Israel. That's the way it's set up because there are two kingdoms. Jeremiah was sent to the southern kingdom, to Judah, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. And by this time in Israel's history, the people had so violated the Mosaic Covenant that God had sent Assyria to be annihil- to annihilate the northern tribe of Israel, and they did. And in 722 B.C., Assyria came, destroyed Israel, and they never returned. And this was consistent with the promised curses of the covenant: "If you disobey me, I will I will curse your bed." I will curse you when you wake up. I will curse the fruit of your womb. I will curse your vines. I will curse your crop. I will curse your cattle. I will curse your children. I will curse your land. If you break this covenant, you deserve death. I will let you live, but you will be cursed. And you will lose your land. And you will lose all of the things that I promised you. And that's exactly what happened. They began worshiping other gods, which was the most abominable thing in the eyes of God. They were told from the very beginning, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make yourself an idol. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, Jeremiah had been sent to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, and the surrounding territories there to declare what had recently happened to Israel, and the north was soon about to happen to Judah in the south if they did not repent. But they would not repent. 
They wouldn't repent. They had seen what happened in Israel. They had seen their captivity, but they said, we have the temple. We have God. We have the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody can overthrow us. God said, it's coming. Even this was not sufficient to the salvation of their souls. Now Jeremiah came and brought this message. They wouldn't repent, and so God sent Babylon to take Judah captive 70 years until they had repented of their idolatry. God sent Nebuchadnezzar to attack Judah. And the first people he took included four men that you know by name. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whom you know either as um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, right? <laughs> Boy, veggie tale theology. How does it ever get in here? Seventy years they stayed in Jerusalem. But even this was not sufficient to the salvation of their souls. The old covenant of Moses simply did not have the power to save anyone. It did not have the power even to transform anyone's heart because it could do nothing to transform the inner man. They were external codes carved into stone. So in Jeremiah 31, turn to 31, even as Babylon was being laid siege against Jerusalem. Babylon was throwing up their ramps against Jerusalem. God makes his people a promise. And this is an amazing thing. You've got Jeremiah. A little little history about what's going on here. Just another aside, if I might. Jeremiah's there, and he's been telling the people, Babylon's coming, Babylon's coming, Babylon's coming. They wouldn't listen. And he said, Lord, what shall I do? There's no hope. Babylon's coming and the people will not repent. You remember when Hezekiah repented? When Assyria was coming after Jerusalem and he was king? And Hezekiah repented. And God sent the angel of the Lord and killed 180,000 Assyrians. So that the King James says, when they all woke up, they were dead. could have done that again they wouldn't repent and God does something amazing he says Jeremiah don't despair I want you to do something that people are going to think is totally bizarre I want you to go to the elders and I want you to purchase a piece of land go out and buy some real estate outside the walls of Jerusalem And sign the title deed and enter into whatever contractual agreement and pay the price. Buy real estate. Real estate that you know and everyone around you knows is going to be worthless in just a few days. Buy it. Because here's my promise. I will bring you back. And that real estate will be yours. This is a sign that I will fulfill my promise. I will never let Israel be destroyed from the face of the earth. You will return. And they did. But even as Babylon was throwing up their ramparts against 
Jerusalem. God makes them a promise. A promise that they needed and we desperately needed. Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Now think, they're living under the old covenant. The covenant of Obey and I'll bless, disobey and I'll curse you. But Lord, we can't seem to obey you. Our hearts just are so vile and so prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on tablets of stone? No, within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. They will not teach each other. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. You see, the old sacrifices could only cover sin. They never blotted out. They never washed it away. God could never say in fullness, I don't remember your sin. I choose not to reckon it to your account. But one day there would be a new covenant. That would be based not on letters and commands and promises of blessing and curse, but a new covenant whereby I change your heart. Well, what happened? Well, Babylon came and sacked Jerusalem. In fact, three times Babylon came. On the first time, they took the young men, the best of the best, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a host of others. And once they got them situated, they came back and took more. And Judah began to feel their oats at some point and started to rebel against Babylon, and they came back and utterly destroyed them. And now they're in the land of Iraq today. They are in Babylon. And God told them, build houses, get married, have children, settle in. Because it's going to be 70 years. In the meantime, Jeremiah, who was the most respected man in the whole bunch, the leader of the Babylonian army, came to him and he said, I've heard about you. We're not going to take you captive. What do you want to do? You can stay or you can come with us. And he said, I can't leave my people. So they let him stay. And when Babylon started to come back, his friends said, we've got to get out of here. 
we got to go to Egypt. And Jeremiah said, no, the Lord told us never to go there again. He rescued us from Egypt. Don't ever go back. And so they kidnapped him. And they took him to Egypt. And Jeremiah disappeared. And so God raised up a new prophet. And this time, not in Judah, but in Babylon. This was the promise that someday God would come to Israel and establish for her this new covenant, not like the old one written on tablets of stone, but a new one written on the hearts of the people. That's what Jeremiah, God said through Jeremiah. And then God sent Ezekiel. You remember the wheels and the wheels? Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 1. I looked out over the Tigris River, the Euphrates, I can't remember which. And there I saw the Lord high and exalted. And there were wheels and there were beasts and four-footed whatevers, four-faced. It was the glory of God that he could not even describe to us. And the Lord came to Ezekiel and said, I have a message for my people. They've been in the land so long and the time is almost over. Tell them I have not forgotten my promise. I have not forgotten the new covenant. And so in Ezekiel chapter 36, turn with me there. This is so important. I want you not only to hear it, but I want you to see it. As you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, he makes reference to these things so often. It's just incredibly significant that you understand the old covenant versus the new covenant and how it relates to the gospel. This is the root of it. Out of the Old Testament, the people are in bondage again, this time in Babylon. And God had already promised a new covenant where he would write the law in their hearts. And now in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, start with verse 25. Ezekiel says to the people on behalf of God, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. And gentlemen, if you were on the retreat, pay special attention to this last phrase. And from all your idols. Verse 26, Moreover, or what's more, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Listen to this. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. The Lord has spoken. Someday you will be able to keep my commandments because my spirit will be indwelling you. It will be like someone coming and rescuing you from the heart attack of death, taking from you your dead, stony heart, ripping it from your chest and carefully inserting in its place a living heart. So I will bless you. So I will do this for you. What are the terms of the covenant? 
It's no longer, if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. I will curse you when you rise. I will curse you when you lie down. I will curse your cattle. I'll curse your children. I'll curse your vines. I'll curse your houses. Rather, now it is, I will do a work in your heart so that your desires will change. Your affections will change. You will love the things of God that you once hated. This Bible that you were scandalized by and hated with everyone else in the world, you will delight in with all of your heart. You will say to your pastor one day, I can't stop reading it. I don't know what's happened to me. I know you have been given a new heart. The new covenant has found fertile soil. You have been a beneficiary of God's covenant, the new covenant. What does all of this have to do with Hebrews 8? Everything. Because in Hebrews, the author is arguing that the promised new covenant has already come. And it has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke Third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 22, and verse 20. The Lord had just participated, in fact, he was participating right now in the meal of the Old Covenant, and he does something amazing. He changes it. He does what only God can do. He takes the liberty that only God has to take the meal of the old covenant and make it into the meal of the new covenant. Verse 20. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the what? New covenant in my blood. You hear what he's saying? Have you ever heard those words like this before? It will be my sacrifice that brings the promised covenant. And you will be the first ones to receive it. And how was this new covenant established? The persons of the new covenant were God and Israel. And the church, as Paul argues in Romans, would be the beneficiary of this. The sacrifice of the new covenant is the body of Jesus Christ offered once for all by the eternal high priest himself who is Jesus Christ. The terms of the new covenant is that God will forgive your sins and dwell you by his Holy Spirit and grant you eternal life by grace through faith. And the sign of the new covenant, can you guess, is baptism. And the meal of the new covenant is the Lord's table.
Nothing is wasted, beloved. There is nothing that we do as Christians in obedience to the Word of God that has no history, that has no depth. There's nothing in here that is suddenly new. Oh, if we lose our roots, we've lost it all. We must remember that we are beneficiaries of the new covenant in Christ, just as God promised in the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, the author points, author's point is this, verse 7. If that first covenant, Mosaic, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And yet God had clearly said through his prophets that there would indeed be a second, a new covenant. And now the new covenant has come, verse 13, Hebrews 8. He made the first obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. Little did they know how close they were to seeing the remnants of the old covenant disappear. We don't know exactly when the book of Hebrews was written, but I suspect it was a matter of months, certainly more, not more than a couple of years before these people who would receive these words from the author of the book of Hebrews were to see that horrific day when the general Titus of Rome came marching in with his armies and slaughtered Israel slaughtered the people living in Judah, tore down their temple, and left nothing standing but the retaining walls. Little did they know how close they were to seeing this prophecy be fulfilled. It was only a matter of time. And they came and scraped it down to the very foundation. You see, beloved, Jesus, chapter 7, verse 22 if you were alert to this when I was preaching through that section, I skipped that verse, read it, but did not expound upon it because I knew it was coming. Where it says Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And why is it a better covenant? Chapter 8, verse 6. Because it has been founded on better promises, promises that were first revealed by the Old Testament prophets, promises that are now available to be fully realized in Christ, if you will, hold fast and draw near. The point of the book of Hebrews was to encourage these professing believers in this church, many of them were genuine, many of them were false, and some of them were teetering. Do not give up on Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promised new covenant. Why would you turn your back on the substance in favor of a shadow? Listen, folks, the best that Noah could hope to inherit was a world that would never again be flooded in judgment. The best that Abraham could hope to inherit was a son who would become a great nation and dwell in a fertile land. The best that Moses could hope to inherit was the blessing of God for an obedient life, obedient people. But the best you and I can hope to inherit is infinitely better than any and all of these four covenants. 
We've already seen how the author of Hebrews says there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is still a heaven to which the old covenant promise of a promised land only pointed as a signpost. The fulfillment one day we will know when we see him face to face. In Christ we have entered the new covenant by which we are made one with Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, eternally forgiven by the great judge of all men. Our old stony hearts have been removed and the new heart that God has given is alive. And upon this covenant we have fellowship with God and we have become children of the kingdom of God. Is it any wonder that Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. You have an inheritance is an inheritance that was based on the promise that God made Israel. And through Israel, all the nations were to be blessed, even the Gentiles like you and me. And so what does this leave us with? Well, since this is true, Since God has given us a new covenant and a new priesthood by which Jesus Christ represents us before the Father, what is keeping you from placing your trust in Him? And if you know Him as Savior already and you have entered the new covenant, then how is it that we can hesitate to confess our sins and be reconciled to Him and to one another daily? We have a high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. He is not shocked and surprised by our sin. Grieved, yes, but not shocked nor surprised. And he has made everything that we need to deal with that, to restore that fellowship between us and God and us and one another. Why would we hesitate? And thirdly, since we have this new covenant with a new hope and a new priest who always lives to make intercession for us, how can we be slack in our prayers? How can we be slack in our prayers? How can we be slack or slow to go to the throne of grace where we can find mercy and help in our time of need? Come to him, believer. Hold fast. Draw near. You need courage to do something that God has called you to do? Have courage. Do not fear. You are a participant, a partaker, a beneficiary of the new covenant. You have something that you need to make right with someone else? Take courage. He stands before the Father, always living to make intercession for you. He is praying for you. Do it. Don't be afraid. Draw near. Stand fast. Be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we pray.